Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast presented by Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. We're part of the 440 Sports Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Chip Frederick. We'll talk Vanderbilt baseball. Let's get right to that. Chip Frederick joins us as he does during baseball season. Chip was in Memphis this weekend for a soccer tournament, but got to watch or listen to about all of it. Chip, thanks for joining us. Glad baseball is back. And it wasn't the outcome Vanderbilt wanted, but it's underway. And and frankly, I left the weekend thinking they've got a pretty good team. Yeah, good to be with you again, Chris. It, it was a it was a tough weekend for the Commodores, and like you said, I, I follow most of it. That's the joy of you can kind of be pretty much anywhere uh, following your team in 2022 in these days, whether it be uh, video or audio, what have you, or up to the minute with Twitter. But um, yeah, tough weekend for the home team. Uh, but you know, you've got you've got to put in perspective. This was not a um, mid-major, low mid-major they opened up with. This was a team that Tim Corbin in the post-game comp- press conference, and he doesn't throw this out often. He, he He's pretty good at, with his experience for all those years of knowing what it takes to get to Omaha. He doesn't throw those compliments out um, very often. He said that about UT, and they made it uh, last year. He said that it was an Omaha team, and, and, and it might be a little bit early of saying that, uh, the first weekend series because things can change, but he did say that in one of the opening statements that this Oklahoma State has the depth of pitching and the power at the plate to make it to Omaha. So this was not a um, a walkthrough uh, scrimmage type deal that that sometimes some teams will play uh, mid majors to open up. It threw the challenge out there the first weekend and and lost two out of three. But um, I agree with you. I think you and I talked. I think Tim. Um, his demeanor a lot of times after a game, you can pretty much tell when he's upset with their performance or their mental aptitude, where they are uh, heading into the game after the game, after the series, and that Sunday wrap-up interview. And I, and I think taking from his disposition there, I think he knows that he's got a pretty good team and that that Oklahoma State team that took two out of three is going to be um, very successful this year in their conference and has a chance to go a long way. Yeah, I thought he was really going to be hot on Sunday because there were mistakes in the field. There was taking a third strike with your bat on the shoulder to end the game, that kind of thing. But he wasn't that way. In fact, he was calm after Saturday, too. And I just felt like his demeanor told me he thinks he's got a pretty good team. Yeah, and and you you look at how the game's – went throughout the weekend you have the three nothing shutout on friday night and you're feeling pretty good about yourself and and that's the way the things work in the southeastern conference too and this is an obviously an sec caliber type team comparable team and then you you're playing from behind the rest of the weekend in those games it seemed like the 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 game on saturday started off with oklahoma get state getting a, a two spot against malvinado and then you're, you're continually just kind of playing on your heels which in this league and, and when you're playing the elite teams is something that's hard to do with the power pitching that you're going to face. And the same thing on Sunday with the 7-5 to five loss. So it, um, it was a weekend that could be characterized as one that 
uh, things kind of seem like they were at the end of the year, little haunting uh, nightmares of some things at the plate that continually came to come up. Um, there were some things in the pitching department as well that reminded you of last year, and that might be the disconcerting thing if you're a Vanderbilt fan looking at it, that um, it seems like a lot of plate discipline was lacking uh, and, and, and I talked about this at, in Omaha when, the, when we did the season wrap-up wrap last year, Chris, was that it really, you know, the first game in Omaha against Mississippi State, I'm talking about the three-game series at the end, uh, Vanderbilt, you know, dominated that game. You had lighter on the mound, feeling good, pretty good about yourself, and then Mississippi State wins game two. But the deciding factor between the two teams to me was game three. You had a team in Mississippi State, and I told you this last year, that was scrappy, that fouled pitches off, that protected the plate, that didn't get fooled, that didn't take strike threes, um, compared to a Vanderbilt team that seemed like it was guessing a lot and counts, uh, taking strike three um, several times, not being as disciplined at the plate. And the guessing part, and you know, people can say what they want about today's world and being launch angles and, and semantics and people worrying about this and that and um, the the analytics of baseball and the swing and breaking that down. But sometimes it gets to the point that if you're taking a lot of strike three pitches, if you're if, if you're in the defensive part of hitting when you're when you're O2, 1 2, and sometimes 2 2, when you're sitting there and you're trying to guess on those instances when you're hitting I don't know if they're doing that. I'm I'm not 100%, but it, it sometimes makes you wonder. You know, when you guess and you're right, you can hit the ball to West End Avenue. But when you're guessing in in defensive counts like like we saw this weekend, it really makes you look silly at the plate. And I think some of these guys this weekend perhaps and we'll just have to see how it goes. It's a three-game sample. But there are a lot of things harkening back at the plate that I saw that have me a little worried, not troubled and not, you know, where I'm saying, you know, this is going to be a disaster, but it's things that can be fixed. But you, you look at the strikeouts for the weekend, we struck out nine times on Friday night, on Saturday 12 times, and we struck out 14 times on Sunday. Now, having said that, <laughs> Oklahoma State struck out themselves 18 times on Friday night. Yeah. They struck out 11 on Saturday, and they struck out 16 on Sunday in the game they, they won. I would just think that this team has a lot of ability and some of the players with Bradfield and you have Vaz and you have guys who seem like they could be guys who could slap the ball and and not guess. And we'll just have to watch and see the rest of the season, and especially early on, early on here, and see how they make adjustments in that category. Yeah, boy, a lot of stuff to unpack there. Um, first of all, I wondered about Oklahoma State's pitching. Now, Aaron Fitt, who is is a good friend of mine, and frankly, I think Aaron is as good at his at his job as anybody I know in the sports media business, and a, a wonderful human being on top of it. I'm glad I got to spend some time with Aaron this weekend. Aaron put a bullseye on Oklahoma's Oklahoma State's chest by naming that the number one team in the country or not the number one team, his pick to win in Omaha. But And you look at the pitching, you look at the ERAs and, and the kids coming back and like, uh, I don't know. Then you see him pitch and they're all 93, 94, 95, 96 with, with secondary pitches. 
And so some of these kids are just, it's that typical freshman to sophomore jump. The Madero's kid is, is certainly that way. Trevor Martin looks like a better pitcher. Like they had a lot of those guys that just take that jump. And you see this at Vanderbilt some too. Like you're, you're seeing it with some of the arms they threw. So I thought, number one, that was a very, very legit pitching staff. Very legit. Probably a, a top 10 staff in the country kind of staff. So there was that. But yeah, I'm with you. The the hitting, you know, the the inability to, to do different things and just put the ball in play was a big thing. And I mean, Parker... Nolan and Carter Young just didn't hit the whole weekend. Keegan was up and down. It just seemed to me like one, two, three guys hit, seven, eight, nine guys hit, and four, five, six is where it just broke down time and time again because those are the guys you're counting on to deliver big hits and big spots. And other than a couple times with Keegan, they just didn't. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at Keegan, Young, and Nolan went – four for 33 on the weekend uh those are three guys who you you know this team is counting on to give them some positive offensive norm numbers but it, we're just it's a it's a very short sample size and uh it is easy to for people to panic and 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 do that this early but you got to understand you got to put it in perspective of just like you said the pitching staff i mean you're talking about justin campbell on Friday night, he took the losses. I mean, his stuff and his accolades, they're talking about him being a very high draft pick. And it, it is true that jump you talk about, we can say there are countless number of Vanderbilt pitches, pitchers through the years that have made that jump between freshman, sophomore year, or sometimes even sophomore to junior. They go to the Cape, they come back with loads of confidence, and next thing you know, they're in the rotation um, and they're getting accolades and they're going to be high draft choices. So, yeah, it's it's when you look at it on paper, there's some things that uh, obviously from the plate, and I'm sure they'll get it done. It's raining now, and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to play tonight um, or Wednesday. But it's it's important to get these games under your belt, get these guys back on the on the horse, so to speak, and confidence-wise as they head into Army this weekend. But there's still a lot of baseball to play. You can look at it two perspectives, Chris. You can say, let's play some low mid-major and sweep and 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 do that and it's freezing cold and you kind of sitting there going well what do we really know about yourself well you know pretty you know a whole lot about yourself after this weekend facing the pitchers and the hitters that they did this weekend and and i think looking back on it and i firmly believe that sometimes coaches would rather know where they are uh, than kind of sit there and say well we played well we got a sweep but do we really know where we are and what we need to work on yeah, you see a lot of teams that are boat racing teams, eleven to two and thirteen to one and fifteen to six on, on these weekend yeah. games. And by my experience, that doesn't tell you anything. I know that the outcome wasn't what people wanted. And my concern a little bit is this: is their schedule this year? They're going to have a hard time racking up a lot of marquee wins until probably April. I mean, I'm looking in South Carolina and Tennessee if they get series wins there. I think that'll move the needle with the committee. But they're not playing anybody else out of conference that you're going to look up come Selection Sunday and, and go, well, wow, they, they took a series from these guys or that guys or th- those guys. You know, they open with what, Missouri? 
and then they go to South Carolina, Tennessee, but Auburn, I mean, that Florida, okay, that, that gives them a shot at one at Kentucky, probably not going to help them much. A&M, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I'm probably overdoing it a little bit, but my point is it's those big series wins that get you cachet with the committee, and, and that's and that's an opportunity that they miss that, like, if it comes down to them or Oklahoma State for, you know, say, a four or five national seat or something like that, that's – that's something that will get held against him a little bit long-term is that they didn't win that series. Other than that, there are some other concerns, but that's probably like of all the bad outcomes of the weekend, that's probably the, the worst thing that went against them. But, again, they'll have a chance to make some of those up later. Yeah, and, and I think above all, if, if anything, the dose of reality, the cold water in our face uh, this weekend was that, um, you know, you had lighter and rocker – are not no longer in that dugout. Not that you didn't know that, but man, that was a luxury for uh, a, a two-year period, three-year period. Um, that really, uh, you know, that, that you 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 knew how good they were, but and we talked about it that things were going to be different on the pitching mound. But gosh, that was a tremendous luxury that this team had, and you just got to build from it, and you've got to throw people out there and get them experience just like you do the position players, because if, if there's only way these guys can grow up and they can, you can do all that escalation, you know, you want as far as throwing guys out there, but and talk about their accolades, for instance, with, you know, Carter Holton on Sunday, he's great for three innings and then has the blow up and the three walks and, and you look at his line and the first three were golden and then he gets in trouble in the fourth frame and, those are just situations that you can't practice it. You cannot practice putting someone out there in a scrimmage or in the black gold game and say, this is what it's going to be like, you know, when you're in front of 3,800 people and in a, in a clutch game against a team like Oklahoma state. So they'll learn. And it, as far as your comment about, you know, it's when they play those teams that they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. I think that's one instance. I think the committee from their, from their past um, that helps them. I know the past doesn't matter to Tim and this coaching staff, every game and every team is built differently and you have to earn uh, your accolades and your wins and your advancement on your own. But this team and this league, I think is so strong top to bottom that they'll get the benefit of the doubt on, you know, when it comes down to it. And it's just going to be a little different. We talked about that last week. You got to get used to it and build on it. And I think this team has the moxie to do so. It's just going to be, have to be done a whole lot differently. This season of the Vandy Sports Podcast is made possible by my friend, Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. And just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville. But he sees regular folks like you and I as well. And what people like about the experience is the ambiance. Someone described it to me as a tooth spa. I went in and looked at it myself. That's exactly what it is. It is a relaxing, friendly environment. So whether your dental needs are general or cosmetic, go see Jody. Call him at 615-270-2322. His office is located at 55 Music Square East, not far from downtown Nashville, not far from the Vanderbilt campus. Jody is a former Vanderbilt football player, a huge booster of Commodore Athletics. 
His support as the title sponsor for Season 7 is the reason we are able to do this podcast. Go see Dr. Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of the Vandy Sports Podcast and tell him you heard about it here. Yeah, I'm looking at some things on the stat sheet, and I think this really boils down where the big difference was. I know people are frustrated with Vanderbilt's hitting, but let's look at this. Vanderbilt's on-base percentage for the weekend, 327. OSU's was 304. Vanderbilt strikeouts on the weekend. It struck out 35 times as hitters. Oklahoma State struck out 45. Vanderbilt walked 12 times. OSU walked 11 times. Slugging percentage, Vanderbilt 383, OSU 317. So both teams scored 11 runs for the weekend. What was the difference? Well, you look at that E category. Vanderbilt made three. Oklahoma State didn't make any. And in in addition, frankly, there were a couple more plays that could have easily gone as errors that didn't. That was the thing that stuck out to me, which is Oklahoma State locked it down in the field all weekend. I don't really remember any mistakes with Vanderbilt. It was those errors. It was Dom Keegan, and I hate to to point a finger at him. Um, And in his defense, he was playing catcher two days and then back at first the next day. So I'm, I'm guessing he just wasn't taking as many reps there at first as he was last season. But a ball gets under his glove uh, to start a rally, I think, in the, in the ninth. And then another one, he makes a leaping play for it. It ticks off his glove, goes into right. You know, they make one of those two plays. The complexion of that inning is different. Parker Nolan on a ground ball that's hit to him. Gosh, I think to start the game on Friday or Saturday, I don't remember which, um, you know, boots it, no error charge because it was a tough play, but that's one you just got to make. And I think that was the biggest thing. And I think, look, I think that will resolve, right? Because if there's one thing about Tim, if you're not defending your position, you're not going to play, and they've got other guys. But that was something that it, of all the things I wanted to see better over the weekend, I think defense might have been number one on the list. Yeah, agreed. Um, and those have been sort of trademarks of Tim Corbin's teams over the years as having that. That And, you know, the, what impressed me as far as what Oklahoma State did in game three, and it changed the whole concept and the context of the weekend, I should say, is Vanderbilt puts the two spot up in the bottom of the eighth, ties it. It's five to five. And Oklahoma State did exactly what teams – in the past for Vanderbilt did and championship caliber, mentally tough teams. They come right back in the ninth after Vanderbilt answers the crowds into the game and they get the uh, single single to start off down the right field line. Thompson doubles, you know, it, it, it in a great at bat for him and they answered. And that was the key component to me that they answered immediately. It seems like Vanderbilt teams over the last several years the really good ones, when a team responds, whether it was at home or away, they were able to get that. And, you know, if the game – if they get the first out in the in the, in the ninth, the top of the ninth, if Vanderbilt comes back, gets them out of that inning, we score, get a win, get a walk-off, whatever, it changes your whole complexion of the weekend, how you feel about it. You know, you say, well, we took two out of three from a really good Oklahoma State team and – they're in the top 10, feel good about ourselves, and instead it just leaves the bad taste in your mouth, and that's the way baseball works. That's why, you know, the three-game series, you got you got to get all 27 outs, and, and that's not what happened this weekend uh, as, as far as stopping them. So 
it was a it was a close series. Looking back on it, um, you know, they look like two teams in the strikeout category that. It was their first weekend, and I think that'll change as the hitting kind of heats up here. The weather gets better. But um, when you take a step back and look at it, which I think Tim was already doing on Sunday in his post game, is there's a lot of, of games to be played. And I think, he, he as we talked about at the beginning, uh, he, I think he knew exactly how Josh Holliday's team uh, it looks to perform and is projected to do the rest of the year. Well, Let's talk about, I thought, the biggest positive of the weekend, and that was pitching depth. I thought McIlvain's start was tremendous. Ten strikeouts, one walk, four innings. I thought that Grayson Moore in relief was fantastic. Five strikeouts, one walk, and three innings. Only faced ten hitters. That's a big deal. Hunter Owen gave up five hits and a run that was earned in three innings, but that was some tough luck balls that his teammates just didn't make plays on in some cases or balls that weren't hard hit that just found spots struck out six I thought he looked great Christian Little pitched an inning so-so but got out of it without a run Jack Anderson's one inning was way better than I expected he struck out three and walked a hitter Nelson Berkwich pitched a clean inning looked really good I just thought you looked across the the rotation, Patrick Riley's start or his uh, relief appearance. Four innings, he did walk four, but the fastball was really good. They got one hit off him. He struck out seven. And even Carter Holton, whose final line wasn't good, was just flat out the most dominant arm they had in a spurt. I mean, he comes out the first inning, gets strikeouts on, what, 95, 96, 96, just is shoving the fastball at them. He had that one bad inning, which I think is uncharacteristic. I think the thing we wondered is, do they have enough arms? Like once you get past two, three, four top arms, was there the depth there? And I thought to me that first weekend watching those kids pitch, and again, 45 strikeouts to 11 walks, that's great against anybody. That's phenomenal against Oklahoma State. To me, that is where I left the weekend feeling a lot better about who they are. Yeah, uh, I will say that um, McIlvain's line, uh, I mean, the 10 strikeouts, one walk was um, a great performance by him. I was really impressed with the way he got ahead in the count, stayed ahead, pumped strikes, pitched to contact. Um, I thought he his version of himself changed his body a little bit, I think. Uh, it's been added, and I think that was uh, on the off season, and I think that um, will benefit him. Uh, Riley, um, you know, Riley's got a really live arm, Chris. We know that. Oh, my goodness. That fastball is elite. Yeah. It it really explodes out of his hand. Um, You know, there's a difference between being wild and wildly effectively wild, uh, so to speak. And he has the ability to do that. I still still would like to see his walk numbers cut down. and, And I think he'll get there. But he has the experience. He's still a young kid. He's only, I think he's got, what, 35, 40 innings under his belt before this uh, outing um, as far as game one. Um, So, you know, I I felt good about him. I don't know, Chris, if Thomas Schultz is going to be the closer. Um, I don't think – I think Thomas is a very good pitcher and is going to help this baseball team. He, he, He came in game one and three. I don't think he has an effective knockout punch like, uh, you know, an Amalbinado would, um, you know, that has had or what this team has been used to. And I feel like what you need 
in this conference to be effective when you got one run leads, two run leads. Uh, but he got the ball twice this weekend, and that's at least what they're they were thinking. He's the only guy who got the ball twice. So um, as far as the Maldonado and you know. I think it's funny that some people just, you know, the Maldonado experiment, quote unquote, I, I don't know if it's an experiment. I've had several people ask me that, like, is this an experiment? You don't, I, I mean, I think that this will go for maybe a couple weekends and they'll make a decision. I don't think you can call the first game that he pitches um, and just revert back to him that he's the, he seems like he's more of the closer still to me, Chris. Uh, it, it is difficult to uh, go back and say, you know, here's a guy who threw a lot late in games last year, and you're going to do this. But um, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a quick, quick hook while we're going to bury this and and not and we're not giving another opportunity against Army this weekend to go back out there. Um, gave up the two spot early and then and battled back and uh, struck out three, walked one. You know, 68 pitches. Uh, you know, that's that's more pitches probably than he's thrown in the last three outings combined. If you go back to last year, so. Uh, but other, you know, there were some good signs there on, on the mound. Holton, as we talked about, uh, I think Tim said that um, it, Oklahoma State kind of got him out of his rhythm, which young pitchers tend to get when that. You know, when you get another team and they see a rookie on the mound, they're going to try to mess with him and upset his rhythm. And he had a very quick rhythm as it gets, as it's to begin with. But I think that was the main thing that the pitching staff and Tim Corbin identified that Oklahoma State got him out of his rhythm. He'll just learn from that and um, <clears throat> a learning experience. So Christian Little, not really to talk about other than, you know, the one inning. We'll see where how that goes. I'm sure that he was going to get more action midweek, um, that was the plan, and as you mentioned, Hunter Owen striking out six, walking done, throwing 46 pitches. I was impressed with that. So overall, uh, for the staff, uh, for the you know three, seven, ten guys he threw because Schultz threw twice. Uh, I thought it was good to get the, all those guys out there, and nothing really to write home about other than um, he had some guys throwing strikes and the strikeout numbers, and nothing hugely glaring as of yet. Other than my comment that I don't, I'm not so sure if Schultz is going to be the guy in May. Could be, but um, we'll just have to monitor that and see what how that uh, finishes up. Well, sometimes it is about how the pieces are arranged. And look, Tim has done this just about every year. Like you remember the year that Jared Miller starts in the rotation and Bueller's pitching on Tuesdays, and uh, Fulmer I think starts the season in the bullpen. Uh, you know, and, and then by the time you get to Omaha, that looks a lot different. And Miller's, you know, their fourth, fifth guy of the bullpen or whatever he wound up being. And I'll go back to 19, too, because everybody all year, the thing was, I don't know if you can win with Fellows as your number one starter. And you had Rocker. I don't remember. Was Rocker pitching on Saturdays or Sundays that year? He was pitching on Saturdays, game two. Yeah, okay, game two. And then you had Raby pitching game three. And he had Mason Hickman pitching on weekdays. Well, you look up, and I said, all it all it takes is rearranging the pieces a little bit, right? Um, and they flipped Hickman into into Raby's spot, which strengthened their rotation by a factor of probably three immediately, or that spot in the rotation. And I always said, like, if if you put if you rearrange the pieces, and you go, well, Rocker's your one, maybe Hickman's your two. 
and Fellows is your three. You're going, well, my goodness, Fellows is a, a phenomenal three, and Hickman is a great two, and Rocker is as good ace as anybody's got. You just, just the way that you arrange the pieces, it looks a lot different, even though the names are basically the same. I think you've got that potential with this pitching staff. And, and hear me out on this, okay? I think that – and we don't know if it's going to come this year or not with, with um, Riley, but it might – and let's say it pops and the control falls into place. I think you could make him your one or two, and and maybe even Holton's your Friday night guy at some point. It wouldn't surprise me. And I think McIlvain, I thought he looked tremendous. His fastball was way better than I'd seen it. And it wasn't really the velo so much, although I think he did hit 96 on a pitch or two. But he was 92, 93 for the most part. But the movement, I was sitting next to the track man guy, and that ball was really doing some stuff, according to the data. So I think you look at it and you go, maybe Holton or Raby is your, your one and two in some order. And maybe McIlvain is probably at that point as good a three as anybody's got. You look great. You talk about Schultz in the bullpen. I don't think Schultz is going to end the season as their closer. I think it's either going to be Moore or Maldonado. And, and I, by the way, I just completely disregarded Maldonado as a rotation piece. It wasn't intentional. But my point is, you could throw Maldonado back in the closer's role. You know what you're getting. All of a sudden, you've checked that box. Your rotation looks great, probably, if if Riley can throw some strikes. Oh, you got Little, maybe it's your, your, your weekday four uh, to try to work through his issues. And I think Schultz is a usable piece. He's not an in-game guy to me. Because I don't think he's got an out pitch. But Schultz was pretty good in that first appearance. And I think he's a kid who's thrown strikes before. He can give you one, two, maybe three good innings just by the fact he's throwing strikes. I think he's a kid that you can use as a, as a bridge guy on weekends, maybe in that sixth or seventh inning. Then all of a sudden, and look, we haven't even seen Bradley or Fertrell or some other guys pitch that can probably help them too. Then all of a sudden you look at it, and I think you can find a scenario where everybody's got a natural spot and a role, and it all works. And I just think, to me, that was the biggest thing I took away is, yeah, you look at some of the roles, and I don't know that they fit, but I think if you rearrange the parts, to me, it sure looked like they've got enough of them. And I think that's that's going to be huge for them this year, yeah, especially yeah. postseason. And that, and that's look, that's where they ran out of gas last year, right? After right. Rocker and Leiter and Maldonado, there just wasn't much left. But I think this year, it seems to me they left the weekend with eight, nine, ten really usable pieces that, that you could use in Omaha or wherever else, potentially. Yeah, I mean, the tea leaves, look, the tea leaves read, Chris, to me, um, just from – checking it out and not being at every workout and not seeing these guys throw a bullpen. Is it like a combination of Riley Holton little for your rotation? I think you said that. Uh, and then having Maldonado in the pen, I mean, you, you got right. Little has all the talent in the world. You just question whether he, if, if he's uh, able to go out there, he's had the experience in Omaha, you know, he's super, super talented and, I'm not saying that it's there for his taking, but you would think that if he can get it together um, mentally and 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 throw strikes and get out there, the, the talent's super there for him to be a starter. Holton showed in the first three innings why this staff trusted him to be out there as a freshman so early. I talked about last weekend, if, if some of the listeners didn't listen, you know, that has not happened 
even to a Sonny Gray to, I mean, you know, I don't think David Price started on the weekend until um, it was the Alabama series. And I want to say it was week two of the SEC, I think. And that week might have three. even been early. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, you know, you're that that is a privilege that has not been given by this coaching staff to very to very many pitchers. And then Riley's uh, just the potential there as far as the ball, how it explodes out of his hand. You know, those are three good names, and there's others on there, too. Schultz, to me, looks like that role that Hickman had uh, for, for so long midweek where he racks up eight, nine, ten, ten wins during the week just mowing people down. Now, not saying he couldn't help on the weekends, but I'm just saying on paper that's what it appears to the casual observer. So, uh, But they'll rearrange the, de- the chairs on the deck, so to speak, the next couple weeks, and that's what these games are for and, and for us to uh, debate them uh, and, and, and see what we see. But uh, I think that um, there's enough talent there to get the job done and, and have this team advance. Uh, but you, you just got to remember, it's, it's the luxury uh, before people – and before people want to jump off the Siegenthaler Bridge – Look what happened to Mississippi State this weekend. I mean, come on. They're, they look you know, bad their first two games. Well, yeah, I mean, other, in the mound, they look good on game one, but the lineup got one hit. Uh, they give up 14 hits on the on the Saturday game. See, so, yeah, they that that's a team that had some issues this weekend. Yeah, and Florida gets beat by Liberty. Um, there was it twice, right, if I'm correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, so there's some things going on. You know, they have the big national championship vibe and Starkville going on they lose two out of three and and so uh they're feeling a little different about about themselves so a lot of ball, a lot of ball to be played and, and a lot of things for us to debate but the, but i think there's no question that the talent's there and these these arms will develop um brownie is 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 highly capable more than highly capable he knows what he's doing and these guys see him every day and we don't know what's going on in the locker room. We don't know what's going on with the atti- attitudes, um, work habits, and to second guess for us not knowing that it would just be what would just be that just second guessing and and um, we got to let it play out. I'll tell you what I think Schultz is. I think Schultz <laughs> is like their 2014 John Kilachowski. I can see that. Yeah, just the guy that doesn't like wow you when he's out there, but he can throw strikes and get some outs. And again, you know, if the defense goes differently, that that in line looks looks different for him. But I think he's maybe your eighth, ninth guy on one of their elite type staffs where there's a role. I just don't know. I don't know that it's the one they're in. Hey, one other thing before we get to the mailbag, and, and I can't believe we've gone 33 minutes without talking of either of these guys. Offensively, I thought Javier Vaz and Spencer Jones were phenomenal. Um, Vaz has a 636 on base for the weekend, hits a home run, hits a double. Jones hits 417 slash 462 slash 667. But even when he was making outs, he was a tough at tough out. Uh, the bats were more competitive. Vaz is going to have to move up from the eight hole. I mean, I know what they're trying to do there. I, I'm to the point where I'm almost like <laughs> hit Bradfield and Vaz one and two. And I, I was a little concerned about Enrique because you saw some of the same stuff where he struggled a year ago. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you pitch him off speed off the plate. Sometimes he has some issues, and we saw that week one. Now he did he did figure that out a year ago and make some adjustments. But I thought that Vaz and Jones to me 
my goodness, and especially Jones. Jones had the look of a hitter who can carry you, which was his rep coming in. We just hadn't seen it because 2020 got canceled. He was hurt to start last year, and I don't think ever got in a groove. But those guys, I could not have been more impressed with either one of them this weekend. Yeah, they both had good weekends, and it was good to see. You know, Vaz just uh, worked and clawed his way into the lineup last year towards the end, impressed the coaches, which sometimes teams have that. uh, Corbin teams often have that late in the year. Somebody appears out of nowhere and ends up starting, and then the next thing you know, they're in the starting lineup in Omaha. But uh, I, I was glad to see those two guys, and I agree with you on Jones. He's He's got the stature at the plate to be a big-time threat. Um, we'll have to see about I, – I, I agree with you. I know what they're trying to do with Vaz in the lineup, but we'll have to see if that makes sense to move yeah, him yeah, up. He's, he's, he's too good to hit in the eight hole right now. Just too yeah. good. <clears throat> Not too worried about Bradfield. I think he, he will be fine. Uh, you know, he's, he's – uh, the sample size is too small, but I think that kid has a lot. You know, getting on base is is however he can and be a threat because he's you know he's basically standing on second when he gets on first. Um, and uh, so yeah, I, I agree with your comments on those guys, um, how they performed, and, and it'll be good to follow them uh, the next couple games. You ready for the mailbag? Sure. Let's let's go. The mailbag is presented by Sutherland Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, give Taylor or Russell a call. That number is 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Dusty Orlean says, It's tough when the bats don't support you, but what were your thoughts on the good, the bad, and the ugly of Maldonado's start? Uh, you know, it was a totally different role that we talked about in the first time out. Um you know, I mean, it, it. You hearken back to what he did really, really well last year, so that's fresh on your mind, right? You, you, you know that he had that role last year, but I, I just think the, the, as far as the good is concerned, um, you know, he he came back after that first inning, although he gave up three of the first two frames, two in the first, one in the second. Um, you know, 68 pitches, see how he recovers. And that's the main thing you want to do when when he, a pitcher hasn't been used to throwing that number of pitches, how he recovers. Um, but I didn't see all that thing to sit there and get concerned about other than giving up three runs. His strikeout total in four innings, three was decent. Um, you know, I think it's just I'm a grade and an incomplete. I'm not going to give him a grade of, B, C, D, anything like that. It certainly wasn't his A game, but I think I, I want to see a little bit more before I answer that question because I think it's just too early, and there wasn't anything that just jumped off the page to me, Chris, um, to critique it just in four innings and 60, 60 something pitches. Yeah, I've got a log. I try to keep velo logs of what guys are throwing, what pitches, and, and sometimes I sometimes I get all those, and sometimes I don't. And with Nick, I got probably three-quarters of his pitches recorded. But I'm looking at this. Looked like the fastball first inning was 90 to 93 um, with a couple of 92s in there. That's about where he sat. Last inning looked like he was going, or last one I recorded, third inning fastball was going, looks like 90 to 91. So not a lot of dip between innings one and three. And, of course, Nick pitched some longer stints last year in the postseason where I think he threw – 40, 50, 60 pitches. So this nothing entirely new. The thing with 
me and I asked Tim Corbin about it, and he he just said he caught too much plate, if I remember that right. Maldonado walked like what six guys a year ago in fifty something innings, which is elite. Sometimes a guy like that that throws strikes, that's the good and bad of it. I mean, nine times out of ten you'll take it, but sometimes there's that one cent time out of ten. You know, where your strike catches a certain part of the plate, and if you miss by a little bit, it catches a lot of the plate. I think, really, that's my concern with him, and that's it. It's just when you're a strike thrower, sometimes that bites you in certain spots. And that was kind of the way I believe Tim Corbin saw it. Yeah, and I mean, same thing kind of happened to Holton. He was in a groove on Sunday and gets gets a pitch out of the plate after getting into his rhythm and his and his rhythm gets disrupted in the fourth. So I, I think that happened to somewhat you you know, baseball's a funny game. You you're only as good as your last pitch and the last out you get sometimes. And, and I think that happened to both those guys, Holton and Maldonado. But um, you know, I don't I don't I don't think there's anything to this is not a screeching red fire alarm uh, blaring that something's wrong. I think they're gonna sit there and give it, you know, maybe one, two, three more starts before they think about doing something. Next one also from Dusty Orleans. It seemed clear that Holton's velocity dropped after about the third. Is it possible the staff wanted him to experience some adversity and see how he worked through it rather than pull him early? I've got some context for the question. I'm sitting here looking at the pitching log. He was 94 to 96 the entire first inning with the fastball, which is what he threw for the majority of the first two innings. In fact, in the second, literally every pitch was a fastball. That was inning a string where he threw 20 straight fastballs until he threw what I think was a changeup to start the third or maybe a curveball. I'm not sure. So, yes, by the time he got to the third, well, I don't know. The fastball was still 95-96 in that inning. And in the fourth, it dipped to 93, 94, 92 to start the inning. But his last two fastballs he threw were 95 and 94. So really not, not, a, not a huge velo dip. I guess one to two miles an hour. Uh, so I, I don't know how concerning that is. I mean, at that point, they were, they were mixing in a lot more off-speed stuff with him. Again, he started, um, and I think it was Rock Riggio with some off-speed stuff because I think Riggio – uh, can hit a fastball pretty well. But, uh, sorry, that, that's a long-winded preamble before I give you a shot to answer the question, but there's some context for what he's asking. Yeah, I think that, um, I, you know, we they, it was completely talked about after the game about rhythms and, and getting, him, getting him out of his rhythm. Um, and that's a big deal. When you're playing, you know, in a high school game and there's 100 people in the crowd, and then you're playing with 3,800 people. It's a lot different, and there there is some truth to that. That you have seen some coaches where it's like a basketball coach who says, uh, you know, well, we're going to let this team play out of it. We're going to, you know, a team goes on a run, 8-0 run, 10-0 run, and they're going to the coach turns to his assistants and says, I'm going to let them play this thing out and and see what they got in their uh, what kind of moxie they have. And I think there is some something to be said. Uh, to let a, a young pitcher like that experience some discomfort as far as a pressure situation. It happens all the time. Uh, and then you got to know when to pull the trigger. If he, if, if he goes three innings, he comes out, doesn't come out for the fourth, they go to the pen, he has a totally different perspective. And, yes, he feels good about it, but he didn't work through that adversity. So a little bit of both, but that does happen. I will, I will say that for sure. There is 
there's something to be said for you got to let guys be in some situations where they uh you know their heartbeat needs to be checked and they got to uh, work themselves out and slow it down somewhat to where they're they're not leaving balls over the plate and that's what happened to Holton uh just seemed like he got you know his velocity as you said from your numbers were not all that uh, drastic in fact they were if according to your numbers they were a mile or two faster in some instances in that fourth inning Dusty Orleans says, how would you try and contain Enrique Bradfield Jr. once he reaches base if you were back on the mound? Yeah. I'd balk Prayer. a lot. I, I, would, no, I, I mean, you've seen it. You've seen the strategy. Teams will throw over there 15 times. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be guys, I think, from a left-handed perspective, you see a guy test the umpire. Uh, what does it hurt to, you know, that balk line of, of whether it be a balk or not? and seeing how far you can go. But uh, varying your looks is important, and you'll see guys throughout the year and their strategy with Enrique Bradfield Jr. is to vary their licks, looks, slide step. Um, you know, there are rules about quick pitching where you can't just – got to come to a stop. But you have to – you cannot get Bradfield in a rhythm whatsoever, and he's so good even as a sophomore of learning. And those guys watch tape, and they know – uh, as far as moves are concerned and how quick those moves are to first. But you just, as a pitcher, you you do the same thing three times in a row, he's going to steal on the third, and he's going to be there on the second anyway. Left-handed pitchers got to sit there and, and, and not get to the point where uh, you, you're afraid to, to get a ball called on you because that can be highly effective if you've got a great move. So it's rhythm, it's cadence. It's stepping off. It's not letting Bradfield get into a, a mode over there where he's looking for one thing. And, you, and sometimes you will see he's fast enough, Chris, that he'll go on first move sometimes. And if you go on first move and you've got a big enough lead, which he gets out there. I mean, he his leads are when you got that much speed. And sometimes if he gets enough jump on first move, which is first move the pitcher makes, you're going no matter what. He sometimes can beat it down to second base, beat the throw from the first baseman down to second. Not always, but if it's if it's quick enough. So that's what I would do. A lot of prayer too, as you mentioned, um, and not getting him on base in the, to begin with. Um, but that's a problem that a lot of people are going to have in the SEC is, is is trying to contain him, and we saw that last year. The Titans asks. As a pitcher, how frustrating is it when the catcher cannot catch the foul tip on the third strike? You know, I didn't really get all that worked up about things like that. I mean, it's, it's such a hard art to do. There's a lot of spin on balls when they come off the bat, when it goes back to a, a, a catcher on a bang-bang situation. So, you know, moderately frustrated, but it wasn't anything that when I pitched, it was uh, I thought about and, and lingered and just got to get back on the bump and, and throw it again. So... Yes, I mean, you can look and, and tie things together in a game like, oh, if they would have caught that third strike, just like if someone would have caught a foul ball along the foul line that's along the rail, you know, and it goes into the stands and the next guy hits a bomb. Uh, it's easy to, you know, and, and I don't know if you saw, did you see, Chris, did you see the East Carolina game, the highlight from the East Carolina game, and I'm digressing here, but East Carolina and somebody yesterday. Um, let's see. They were playing Bryant, I believe. Bryant. 
a guy hits a bomb. Speaking of like things that you can go back on and what happens, a guy hits a bomb, a walk-off bomb for East Carolina in the bottom of the ninth. And I mean, clearly just, I mean, massive shot. He's going around first base and doesn't realize that right before the pitch, the umpire on first had called time. Oh, no. <laughs> and he called time because he said he couldn't see. The sun was in his eyes. That was his explanation. He said, and so the pitcher's in his windup in the stretch. He raises his hands up clearly and calls time, and then the guy hits the bomb, and <laughs> he's running around the bases. Oh, and the that's umpire awful. Gets, well, Cliff, Cliff Godwin goes bananas. Um, and Brian ends up winning the game in extra. Yeah. So anyway, I digress, but talking about, you know, what could have been drop third strikes, you know, close plays. But if anybody, there's a highlight of it on, uh, Twitter, if you can find it, um, that's, it's, it's, I think it's on that John boy. Yeah. Uh, Twitter, uh, that he always finds those things, but it happened yesterday. So that wasn't even the most notable home run thing of the weekend. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, let me know. What, what are you talking about? Uh, did I'm you saying. see the guy at Chapman University, wherever that no, is? No, what happened? No, what happened? He hits a bomb in a game, and it, it hadn't been off the bat a second and a half, and he takes his bat, and he holds it up to his eye with the knob to his eye like he's looking through the telescope to watch Brian. it leave the park. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> these these uh, celebrations at, at, at the plate... Uh, the the bat flips are getting to be uh, pretty entertaining. And let me just say this, <clears throat> as I digress one more time: if you're a Twitter follower and you're a college baseball fan, and I, know, I think you know what I'm going to say, Chris, because I think you follow him. I'm not sure if you do. If you don't, you need to immediately. The guy uh, Stephen is it Scullich, the Virginia pitcher? Stephen Shock. Yes. Stephen oh Shock. my goodness. Yes. I, I followed him this weekend. His tweets were. Fantastic. He was Virginia's closer a year right. ago. He's I don't know if he's head. gotten into the sports media business or what. I don't, I don't see on his he, bio that he's got a, a podcast or anything, but he's great. Yeah, if, you, if it's Stephen with a P, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and it's S-C-H-O-C-H is his last name. and He's the reliever for Virginia last year on their run that they had. He's a, I think he's a JUCO guy who came to Virginia, I'm not sure, heavy guy, great personality, you know, when they, they were interviewing after game and he was talking about uh, what he was going to eat after. The, he was just a very eccentric dude. <laughs> I mean, he, he's just he'll, – and he's following college baseball this year. Some of it will not make sense to some listeners because it's really catered to – I mean, it's catered to college baseball fans. But a lot of what he talks about, like eating – breakfast on the road and stuff that happens on the bus it's really like if you're a former player i did i was howling um watching uh twitter this weekend because i just scrolled down to his last and he's on there 10 11 times a day he has highlights he has videos so if, if you're a baseball fan i want to give that guy a plug because he's he's uh entertaining and he's talking about vanderbilt's watches he's already on Van, I mean, he's not making oh, that fun was of funny vanderbilt's yeah but he he has a picture of a watch, and he said, "Hey, I just found out. Uh, I just found uh, a story about Vanderbilt's watches. A picture of him, and it's a picture of a big watch. And of course, he's inserted in the text. It doesn't. It, it's throw strikes, dummy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so. Good. That was one of the best tweets I saw of the weekend. So anyway, thought I'd add that. 
Sorry to sorry to digress so much. No, his 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 Twitter account is at Big Donkey Forty Seven. It is very much worth a follow. Yeah, Big Donkey. That's right, Big Donkey Forty Seven, and he's got uh, he's got, and this is just amazes me. He has forty seven thousand followers. Yeah. So Goodness. He needs to be like uh, they need to have him. He needs to have a podcast or something because he's just and he doesn't really he's sort of so eccentric that he doesn't he's kind of embarrassed a little bit when he's on camera when he would they'd interview him he was he was kind of he's kind of sways his head a little bit and and but he's really 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 clever so check it out yeah for sure uh speaking of that nba door asks your thoughts on the new pitching system oh the watches yeah uh, but by the way, I, I looked this up. Game times for those three games: two fifty-three, three on the dot, three on the dot. So it did seem like game flow was a little better. I had, it hadn't occurred to me until I looked it up. But I, I mean, I wasn't. Sometimes you're at games, you're just like, man, this is dragging. It's taking forever. Let's get this on with. And I didn't think that once this weekend. I don't know how much of that helped, but I don't think it hurt. Yeah, and and I think what um, and I think I saw another design this weekend, and it might have been on that Stephen Scotch's page. I, I, I think uh, he might have had a different uh, where he had, did a little tweet of something that they're coming out with that's a little more slim um, that's being designed. Um, so it's something I think that they're going to experiment with. Some other teams might jump on the wagon. You know, the the earpiece deal that came out last year. Um, maybe that didn't work as well as they wanted to. Uh, I, I do think it's a real thing, and it's not just pace of the game, Chris. I think it's more of that m- maybe not necessarily pitch stealing. It's location stealing that's going on uh, from second base, from runners, uh, from from whatever way they can do that through hand signals or whatever. I think that's a – a lot of people might think that's paranoia, but – that can be a huge advantage if if you know because a lot of these guys throwing 95 96 you're sometimes guessing to begin with uh as far as you know what pitch it is i mean you you can't guess too much as i talked about earlier but it it location if you know a guy's throwing in catcher setting up in or setting up out if if you have on that device somehow or you can relay that that uh, the location, which I think you can do, you can say the type of pitch and also where you want the location to be. So the catcher's not having a setup early early enough, uh, uh, the pitcher's in the stretch, than he would like to. I, my thoughts on it are, I think it's too early. I, I mean, I, I don't, I want to see if they're trying to slow the game down, that's number one. Number two, if it's, if it's a truly a thing where they're trying to get ahead of it and not having pitches tipped, um, if if the if the earpiece was being too much a distraction, if it wasn't working, um, and that's something maybe you can ask coach that in your next press. I'd, I'd be very interested to know because I just saw it on I saw a picture of it. Uh, I actually saw a picture of Maldonado that someone tweeted, and he's got this big watch looking thing on. And I'm like, what in the world is that? Um, what are your thoughts on it? You, well, yeah, I, I noticed something. I saw Chris Maldonado with an Apple Watch on after the game. I thought that that's odd. I haven't gotten a chance to ask him yet because I didn't. I didn't really know all that stuff until I think after the weekend was over, and I guess it had blown up on Twitter a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, I did see, I did see Maldonado glancing his glove a few times, and I thought it was just, you know, they wear wristbands for positioning or whatever or pitch calls. Um, 
So I, I guess I didn't I didn't realize there was more to it until afterwards. I will ask him about that um, at some point, probably this week. But I'll tell you something funny. I was watching MLB Network yesterday, and Harold Reynolds, who is as old school as it comes, was having a fit over it and how terrible it was. And <laughs> these kids need to to learn. You know, catchers need to learn to call their own games and all that stuff. I'm like, this, this is not 1980 anymore. Um, yeah. You know, like, d- d- do you really think that? When you get to the big leagues, that stuff's not coming from the dugout too, or, or, or I mean, I guess it's a little different. But I just thought, I get what he's saying. He said players don't have to think for themselves anymore. But in the age of analytics and these coaches having all this data, I just, I don't think this trend is going away. I don't think it's it's going back to, to everything being on the players again. Yeah, and I don't know if it was an, just an experiment or if there's something here to stay. They're going to see how it's going to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be, I mean, we're talking about major league baseball experimenting with robots or lasers or whatever to call strikes. Uh, I don't think there's any going back. Um, they're going to at least try it and see, and maybe that's just what's happening here, but I'm, I'm curious to see, um, what they th- think about it, how they think it helps. Um, and if it's just more for, you know, cause Tim's a rules guy, he's on, I think he's on the rules committee, if I'm not mistaken, or has been. If this is a pace thing or if it's more of we're trying to get our guys uh, the best advantage on the mound to not give away location or give away pitches with the quickest way possible. I'm personally not looking down at the wristband every time last year that some of those teams were doing it just got a little old, but it takes a second or two. It's fine, Um, but I'll be very interested to see what they think since it's out there and it's on the networks to see what they think. Well, nothing's worse than a Virginia catcher staring into the dugout for 15 seconds every time to get a sign. Right. Now, that's what I – yeah, I, that that I don't like for sure. Okay, last one. NBA Door says, called third strikes to end both losses. Is that just a case of good pitching and the bat still adjusting or lack of aggressiveness? I think that goes back to what I said at the beginning of, the, of, the, of this podcast. The first five, six, seven minutes was talking about guessing – and uh, you, you know, the really really good hitters will will if they are you know they won't get fooled on an O2 pitch you know the Tony Gwynn type deal he just foul stuff off that he didn't like he was that good. Um, but I, what I don't want to see is uh, is taking too many O2 pitches for or two strike pitches down the gut. It it tends to think that you are perhaps guessing. It does it does tend to have someone who follows the game um, to think that that's what's going on. And I don't think that's what these guys hopefully have been trained to do, but um, at that point, just getting the ball in play. So those are those kind of old things, taking a, you know, two strike pitches down the gut, get making the third out at third, those old tried and true thing that, you know, as much as we talk about watches and things of baseball that are changing and robots calling behind the plate, those things are still true about baseball that will not change that for years, you know, and we had another one of those this weekend, taking, get making the third out of third, taking, taking yeah. two strike pitches down the gut. I mean, those, those things in baseball are tried and true. Uh, and so, but to answer his question, um, I just hope it's not leaning the thing that we got guys up there guessing because if they are, they're in for a long couple of weeks until they work it out. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's one more thing here and I've, I think I've, forgotten it so i'll just go ahead and give it to you to to close out and 
of course, tell people about Frederick and Clark, which is your real estate business, as you do that as well. Sure, I'll just do that close, Chris. Frederick and Clark Realty, big Vanderbilt supporters, our real estate company. We have also have an insurance agency here. At our offices in Green Hills, but two locations, in uh, one in Brentwood, one in Green Hills. We've got 180 agents, and we're happy to help all sorts of Vanderbilt fans, SEC fans, uh, to their buying and selling of homes. The market is really tough right now, with there not a lot of inventory on the Nashville real estate market, whether it be condos or homes. Uh, there's just not a whole lot out there, and the prices are still very inflated, as they are across the country. But Interest rates are still good. If you find the right home, it's just a matter of dealing with making an offer on a home or if you're selling, dealing with the multiple offers that you're probably going to get in selling a house. What, do I, what does that mean to you? You need a professional to help you through the process, to help you through the red tape, to get you the best money for your uh, home as far as on the selling side, or one of our 180 agents to help you solidify your contract and put it in position that are better than everybody else's. So I urge you to give me a ring at 615-327-4800. We'll walk you through the process. I'll hook you up with one of our great agents, professional agents. This is what they do for a living. They don't, they're not out there selling one house a year. These are professionals who know what they're doing. Check us out on the web at frederickandclark.com. You can Google that and put in Frederick and Clark Real Estate. It'll take you to the site. And we'd love to help the listeners out. Chip, thanks a bunch. We'll see you soon. We will see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We thank our presenting sponsor, Jody Jones DDS. We thank our other sponsors, Sutherland and Belk and MyPerfectFranchise.net. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, and that's how we make this work, please email me at chrislee70 at gmail.com. We also ask that you subscribe to our website, vandysports.com. That is $99 a year. You get things there that you don't get here. And, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe where you see our podcast. That helps us get noticed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at vandysports.com. Follow me at chrislee70. And finally, subscribe to our Vandy Sports YouTube channel as well. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, which is part of the 440 Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. We'll catch you with another episode coming very soon.